Amen. Amen. Feels appropriate to pray right now, doesn't it? Whatever you carried into this room today, let's carry it to the Lord in prayer. Let's do it right now. Father, we thank you for the privilege of carrying our prayers to you. And thank you that we can do that with the confidence of knowing that you are carrying us. We thank you for the promise of your word that you are with us always, that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you save the crushed in spirits. You invite the weary and the heavy laden to carry their burden to you and exchange it for the promise that you'll carry us. Father, we thank you for this. So Lord, as we come to your word this morning, as we are reminded that we can come into your your presence with confidence and with assurance through the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to come to you boldly today. Confident not in what we've done for you, but confident in what Jesus has done for us. So Father, will you now speak words to us that will edify your church and bring glory to your name. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Speak it to our hearts today. We ask this in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and be seated. And as you find your seats this morning, I'm gonna invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we'll spend our time together this morning. If you're new with us, there's Bibles in the rack of the seat in front of you. So feel free to use one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that with you as you go today. Um, Today, we're kicking off a four-week message series called Reset. This has been a big transition year for our church family that actually started about a year ago. Um, It was a year ago this month, we kicked off our Buy a Chair campaign. So the chairs you're sitting in right now were because of the chairs you bought a year ago or others who were trying to support us as we got in here. So it's pretty incredible. About a year ago, we were kind of entering into transition season. And as we wrap up our first summer here, we're kind of entering out of that transition season. And beyond just being a big transition season, if you know, uh, if you've lived in Beaufort for a while, we live in a really transient community. And our congregation has felt that, especially this year. It's been a heavy PCS season for our congregation. We've had dozens of folks who have been with us for several years who the Lord has moved on to their next duty station and and hundreds of new faces that we have welcomed through these doors through the course of the summer. So what we're doing over the next four weeks is something we try to do about every 18 months. Being a community where there's constantly so much movement, about every 18 months, we pause and we recenter ourselves on the basics of who Jesus calls us to be and how it is he calls us to function together as a church. Now, I had this conversation with someone from our church a couple weeks ago. He was like, man, you know, we've added this worship service, uh, third worship service. We've moved to a new facility. There's so many new faces. He was like, I feel like we've become a brand new church over the summer, and we feel that with you. And so whether you have been with us for just a few weeks or whether you've been with us for a few years, we're going to recenter ourselves, reset our lives around the essentials of what it means to be the church and to fulfill the mission Jesus has given us to fulfill. When you walk through the front doors into the building, the first words that you see on the dominant wall there in the cafe is our church's mission statement. It's a paraphrase of the Great Commission. Our mission statement as a church is that we exist to preach the gospel and make 
disciples. And the way we preach the gospel, the way that we make disciples is by gathering, growing, giving, and going. That's the picture we see of the early church in Acts chapter two. So over the next four weeks, we're gonna look at how the gospel shapes our gathering, how it shapes our growing, how it shapes our giving, and how it shapes our going. Uh, Our membership covenant has a statement about each one of these. And the statement about gathering says this. It says, we will gather. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but will faithfully attend our corporate worship, treasuring our weekly opportunity to sing, pray, and receive the whole counsel of God's word. We will delight in the glory of God, depend upon the presence of God, grow in our knowledge of God, and submit to the word of God as the all-sufficient authority in our lives and in his church. We will regularly participate in the Lord's Supper, both to celebrate the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf and to anticipate his future return for his bride. A lot of the language that's in that statement comes directly from the passage of scripture that we're gonna look at together this morning. So today we're gonna see how the gospel shapes our gathering. Back on Christmas Eve, I was out running some last minute errands. We had services that night at the Tabby Place in downtown Beaufort. And um, while I was out at the store, I saw this guy who had been attending our, our, our church for several months and he had actually gone through our membership class and was starting to get connected. And he had, had kind of disconnected for several months and, and we'd not seen him and we were asking each other as a staff, like, hey, has anyone made a personal connection here? And we'd try to reach out a couple times and had not heard anything back. And so as I saw him at the store, I wanted to take just a a quick opportunity just to to go talk with him for a second, maybe try to re-engage him. And I I knew his story a little bit. And he he just had a really rough background, had a difficult upbringing, had gone through a really, really difficult, messy kind of public divorce and um, had dealt with some substance abuse issues and had unfortunately entered into a season where he had kind of relapsed. And so he's sharing some of this with me. and, And man, I could just see the weight of the world on his face and on his shoulders. You could just see and you could just feel from him just the guilt and the shame that he was feeling. And, and so I tried to just in a non-threatening way, just, man, brother, th- there's a place for you. We, we miss you. We've got Christmas Eve services tonight. I hope that you'll come out. And he said, Taylor, he's like, I've just got so much brokenness in my life. He said, and I, I feel so unworthy to be remotely near the church. You know, sometimes what we do as followers of Jesus is we, you know, we associate coming into the presence of God with what we're doing right now. We, we associate gathering for worship with entering into the presence of God. And as we'll see from Hebrews 10 this morning, we're right to make that association. But what we sometimes get terribly wrong as believers is the feeling that because we stumble, because we mess up, because we fail, even for a season, that now disqualifies us from being able to gather together with God's people. But guys, here's the reality this morning. If you and I could only gather here on the basis of how well we did in the past week, none of us are qualified to be here. None of us are. And the hope of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is that we don't come together on the basis of our performance for God. We come together on the basis of how Jesus Christ has performed for us. If you put your confidence in your religious performance, it's gonna lead you to one of two very ugly places. Either you are gonna be insufferably full of pride thinking that you are just elite and above everybody else and everybody else just kind of needs to follow your lead or you are gonna be devastated by your failure to the point that you just totally disconnect. 
We don't come to God on the basis of our performance for him. We come to God on the basis of Christ's performance for us. What we're gonna see this morning from Hebrews chapter 10 is that Jesus gives us confidence to gather in God's presence. Jesus gives us the confidence to gather in God's presence. This is the invitation for you today. It's no matter your sin, no matter your baggage, no matter your past, no matter your failures, no matter what you were doing last decade, no matter what you were doing last year, what you were doing last month, what you were doing last week, what you were doing last night. The invitation today is that you can confidently come into the presence of a holy God through faith in the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ. Just to give us a little bit of context as we dive into Hebrews this morning, the book of Hebrews, if you're not familiar, is written to a predominantly Jewish audience. And what the writer of Hebrews has been doing up to this point when we get to chapter 10 is showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament system of worship, the sacrifices in the priesthood. To borrow uh, Tim Keller language, he would say that Jesus was the true and better sacrifice. He was the true and better great high priest. He is the true and better temple. And in the Jewish system of worship, the temple, the place of worship, housed a room that was called uh, the holy place or the holy of holies. And uh, this was a very important room, and it was sectioned off from the rest of the temple with a really heavy curtain. There was this heavy veil that sectioned off the holy place. And a matter of fact, it was so heavy, the first century historian Josephus said this veil was so strong that you could attach a team of horses to opposite sides of the veil, have them pull in different directions, and it still wouldn't be enough to tear it apart. And, and this security screen was in place because in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant covered by the mercy seat, and that was the resting place of the presence of the glory of God. So once a year, the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and what he would do is he would make a blood sacrifice. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in order to atone for the sins of the people. No unauthorized person was allowed to enter into the holy place. If they did, they would immediately die, so it remained under heavy supervision at all times. And what Matthew 27 tells us is that when Jesus cried his last words out at the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, showing us that we can now have direct access to a holy God. And so with all of that in mind, this is what Hebrews 10 has to say. Verse 19 Therefore, okay, so the therefore is there because of everything I just said. You with me? Okay. Therefore, in light of all that goodness, that therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, everybody say confidence. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Everybody say draw near. Oh, this is so good. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Everybody say assurance. Full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So what the writer of Hebrews is showing us in verses 19 and 20 is that in the same way the temple veil was torn, the veil of Christ's flesh was torn open and his blood was offered as the final atoning sacrifice for sin. 
Jesus made a new and living way. He made a permanent way for us to enter into the holy place, which is the very presence of God. So church, understand this. The access that Jesus has given us through his death, this is not access to a holy place in a sanctuary on earth. This is access to a holy God in the sanctuary of heaven. This is what Jesus has offered to us. So therefore, in light of all of this, he gives us three imperatives in these verses. First imperative, let us draw near to God. Let us draw near to God because we have confidence, because we have assurance, because access has been opened to us and granted to us. Let us draw near to God. As you walk through uh, into the sanctuary this morning, you walked through a couple of different sets of red doors. And you know, we explained the significance of this when we held our first worship gatherings on Father's Day here just a couple months ago. This is an old Christian tradition. We're, we're far from being the, the very first people to do this. But red sanctuary doors are inspired here that it comes from Hebrews chapter 10. It's this passage of scripture that serves as that inspiration. So when we gather together for worship, as we walk through the portal of the red doors, what we're being reminded is that we can draw near to God. We can come into the presence of God because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We can come to God with confidence and assurance. And, and so that's the case that, that Hebrews 10 is building for us. Since we have confidence to enter holy places, since the curtain of his flesh has been torn open, since there is a new and living way, since we have a great high priest, because of all these things, why on earth would we not draw near to God? Let us draw near to God. And we can draw near to God in a couple of different ways. We see in verse 22, we can draw near to God with true hearts. Verse 22, we can draw near to God with true hearts in full assurance of faith. Every single follower of Jesus Christ, myself included, at some point in time, we wrestle with this question of how can I truly know that I'm saved? How can I have, a, how can I have confidence? How can I have assurance? How can I know that 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 I belong to Jesus and he belongs to me? It was Charles Spurgeon who was once credited with saying, I'm so confident in my salvation that I could swing out over hell on a cornstalk and sing blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Like whether Spurgeon said it or not, that's pretty cool, right? You can attribute it to me if you want to, that's fine. That's the kind of confidence that we want. That is the type of confidence that we want. How can we draw near to God with true hearts? How can we truly know that we've been saved? You know, I wrestled with this question when, when I was a teenager. Um, I had grown up in the church, was born into a home where I had two parents, by God's grace, who loved the Lord, who raised me uh, in faithful uh, membership and partnership with the local church. And when I was five years old, we had a close family friend who almost died in a car accident. And I remember at five years old just being terrified of the idea of death. And, you know, I'd grown up in the church and I had some understanding like of judgment and, and the need to be saved. I remember coming, getting out of my bed one night and coming and finding my dad in the living room and just sharing this. Like, I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid of judgment. I want to know that I'm going to heaven when I die. And, and my dad, man, to, to the very best of his ability, I, I think he explained the gospel clearly to my little five-year-old heart. And a couple months later, I was, you know, so I prayed this prayer with my dad. And a couple months later, I was, I was baptized but then for the next 10 years, maybe for the next decade of my life, I just live with this constant, like, man, it, did, did, it, did it stick? Like, did it work? As I got into high school, you know, I was getting into the exact same trouble that everybody else was getting into. 
I had no conviction at all for my sin. I had no desire to be in the church. I had no desire to be in the word of God. And then once again, we had a close family friend who passed away and I was once again confronted with this question. I remember confiding in in a leader and just asking, hey, like I'm having a lot of doubts about my salvation. How can I be sure? How can I be certain? And, And this was the answer he gave me. I think it was very well intended, but this was the answer he gave me. He said, well, here's how you can be certain. He said, when you prayed that prayer, did you really mean it? And I'm just like, I mean, I think so. You know, I think I meant it as much as, like it was completely unhelpful for me. I'm like, I, th- I think I prayed it as much as my little five-year-old heart knew how to pray it. I, I think I wanted to be forgiven of my sins. I think I wanted to be able to go to heaven when I died. I, I think that I meant it. And again, I understand the intention behind this and the importance of, of sincerity, but this was the problem with that. My confidence wasn't being rooted in what Jesus did for me, my confidence was being rooted in what I could do for myself. And friends, here's the critical question every single one of us has to be able to answer. If you want confidence, if you want assurance, this is the question you have to be able to answer. Have you hung the hopes of your soul on the finished work of Jesus Christ? If you're putting your confidence in your emotion, if you're putting confidence in your, in your, uh, your sincerity, you're putting your confidence, man, I had, a, I had a big experience at youth camp. I walked the aisle at vacation Bible school as a kid. Listen, it's not that that didn't happen there. It could be totally legit. But, but our confidence is not in anything that we do. It's not in our sincerity. It's not in our emotion. It's not in the prayer that we prayed. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ. And until we have renounced anything in and of ourselves to save ourselves, we won't have the confidence and the assurance offered us here. We won't have true hearts. We can draw near to God with true hearts because our confidence isn't in us. Our confidence is in him. So we draw near to God with true hearts. We also see from verse 22, we draw near to God with clear minds. Draw near to God with true hearts in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So again, this is Old Testament language fulfilled in Jesus On the day of atonement, the high priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and this was atonement for the sins of the people. And when this sacrifice was made, God's disposition towards his people shifted from judgment to acceptance. Beyond this, under the Old Testament law, people observed various washings and rituals to cleanse their bodies, but ultimately all of it was inadequate to make them clean. Old Testament washings and sacrifices purified the body, but the New Testament and New Covenant washing purifies our hearts. Old Covenant washings and sacrifices were temporary. The New Covenant washing and sacrifice through Jesus Christ is permanent. This is part of what we're symbolizing together in baptism. Understand, it's not the water in the baptistry that cleanses us from our sin. Like, we get it out of the water hose, guys. Like, it's, it's not magic water. It's not, it's not extra holy just because it's connected to the church building. Like, we connect the hose to the big tub. And the new tub's pretty cool. It's got, like, a heater and stuff. But there's, like, there's nothing magical about the water. The water doesn't cleanse us of sin. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin. And what we're demonstrating in baptism is we have been washed clean of our sin. The old me is dead and gone. A new me has been raised together with Jesus Christ on the basis not of what we do, but on the basis of what he's done. One of my favorite TV shows uh, was uh, was Friday Night Lights over the last couple decades. Any Friday Night Lights fans in in the room? Just curious. Man, greater participation in this service. You guys are going to love this next part. 
Friday Night Lights, you know, high school football team, Dillon Panthers in, in Texas. And I had this T-shirt for a while. Emily got it for me for, for our anniversary one year. You know, when, when Coach Eric Taylor gives his speech to the team, no matter who they're playing, even if they're massive underdogs, they're about to run out on the field. He gives his speech. And he's, he's trying to get them fired up. He, he finishes up his speech, and then he'll say, clear eyes, full hearts, and how's the team respond? Can't lose. Let's, go, let's do it again together. Friday Night Lights fans together. We're not we're against no time constraint in this service. I love it. Clear eyes, full hearts. Oh, let's go. Love it. I love it. If, if that's the rallying cry of a high school football team, this is the rallying cry of a believer. It's not clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. It's clear minds, true hearts. Draw near. You can draw near to God. You can draw near to God. You can draw near to God with a true heart. You can draw near to God with a clear mind, confident that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you from your sins. We can confidently come into the presence of a holy God. Let, let, me, let me share something. With some of you, this is gonna be completely devastating. And for some of you, this is gonna be completely liberating. Here's the devastating part. There is absolutely nothing you can personally do to clean yourself up before God. Nothing. There's no amount of church attendance. That There is no amount of Bible reading. There's no amount of praying. There's no amount of singing. There's no amount of financial giving. There's no amount of humanitarian work. Like, man, I, I fear for many followers of Jesus, like your plan on the judgment day is you're gonna stand before God and you're just gonna read off your resume confident that he's totally impressed. And he's not. He's not impressed with our righteousness because the only righteousness we have is the righteousness he gave to us. There's nothing we can do to clean ourselves up before a holy God. And until you come to this realization, you won't understand fully the good news. The good news isn't devastating, it's liberating. Even though you can't clean yourself up before God, Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to clean you up so you can be presented fully before God. Where is your confidence? Are you trying to draw near to God on the basis of what you've done? Or are you drawing near to God on the basis of what Christ has done for you? Verse 23, he goes on to tell us, then let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So first imperative, let us draw near to God. Second imperative from verse 23, let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast to our confession. The Christian faith is built on the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is built on the profession that Jesus is the savior of sinners and that he's the sovereign Lord over all things. The book of Hebrews, it was written in, in as best as we can tell about the mid 60s AD. And that means as these words were being written over the next few decades, just to give you some historical context, the two primary emperors, Roman emperors that Christians were under the authority of were Nero and Domitian. Now, if you've not studied about these guys, they were both notoriously evil and cruel. Nero is known to have uh, taken Christians. He would burn them alive as lamps to light his garden at night. It's believed that both Peter and Paul were executed under the reign of Nero. And then Domitian, uh, he demanded that he be worshiped as a god. He actually assigned himself the title God the Lord. 
And he would set up images of himself all over the empire. And anybody who passed by these images was expected to pay homage to him. And if you didn't pay homage to him, you could put him to death. His, uh, his persecution of Christians isn't as well documented, but particularly among Jewish people, they were severe persecution under the reign of this emperor. And it's believed that John uh, was exiled to Patmos largely because of his refusal to bow his knee and pay homage to these images. So for the first century followers of Jesus Christ, first century followers of Jesus Christ, every single day of their lives, they were coming to the crossroads of the choice, will we bow the knee to Caesar or will we bow the knee to Christ? Will we confess that Christ is Lord or will we confess that Caesar is Lord? And history tells the rest of the story. How believer after believer after believer after believer refused to cower in the face of the threat and gave up their lives as they surrendered themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, I think it's important that we continually are reminded we face nothing like this in our culture today. We're not being forced to bow to statues and idols. We're not being forced to worship political leaders as gods. We don't face the potential consequence of being burned alive as a candle in somebody's garden just because they don't like us. But every single day, church, you and I do still face the choice to surrender to something other than Jesus as the Lord of our life. Every single day we face this choice. But what's different for us from the first century Christians, our temptations to bow the knee aren't the result of persecution. Most of our temptations are the result of our prosperity. You know, if you've, you've, you've been here for a minute, you know that I'm a firm believer, followers of Christ. We, we need to be actively engaged in political processes. But man, when, when engaging in this means that we have to compromise the integrity of our witness, when we compromise the integrity of our witness, when we vote for policies that brazenly contradict the word of God, when, when we gloss over issues and, and character deficiencies that brazenly contradict the word of God and just kind of pretend like they're not a big deal, when we do these things, when we sacrifice the integrity of our witness for the sake of political expediency, we bow our knee to something other than Jesus as Lord. When instead of holding fast to the word of God, holding fast to our confession, we cower in the face of a radical sexual agenda and we invite it in ways into the church. When we do these things, we bow the knee to something other than the Lord as God. For most of us, this is gonna happen in a million understated ways. We're victims of our own comforts. We're victims of our own materialism. If we're just being honest, a lot of times we don't think twice about living a life where devotion to Jesus, devotion to his word, devotion to his church, devotion to his mission is like 20th on the list of priorities and we get to it only if we have time. When we do these things, we confess that something other than Jesus is Lord and we don't hold fast to our confession. You know, uh, going into the second century as persecution against the church continued, one of the most famous stories of martyrdom was of Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp had been a disciple of the apostle John. He was maybe the last living person to have known uh, a living apostle. And he was faced with this choice of, will I confess Jesus is Lord or will I bow the knee and lose my life? And so as he was brought before the proconsul, he was given that choice, deny Christ and you'll be free. And this is how Polycarp responded. He said, 86 years, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? What fueled his holding fast? What fueled his holding fast to the confession? What fueled it was the faithfulness of Jesus to him. 
If you're gonna hold fast in the face of this world, in the lies of this world, in the temptations of this world, if you are going to hold fast to Jesus, what's going to keep you from denying him, church, is the continual reminder that he has accepted you. It's to stare into the heart of the gospel. It's to be reminded of the faithfulness of God, his love for us and giving us his son, Jesus Christ. What keeps us in those moments of decision, what empowers us and enables us to hold fast to our confession is the continual reminder of the God who's holding fast to us. Guys, listen, I know it's a mess out there. I know it's confusing. I know that truth is up for grabs. I know that right now it's difficult to know up from down and left from right in those moments, hold fast. Hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to his word. Hold fast to his truth. Hold fast to your confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's wrap up this passage, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So Jesus gives us confidence to enter into God's presence. Because of this, let us draw near to God and let us hold fast to our confession. And third imperative, final imperative we see this morning, let us stir up love and good works. Let us consider how to stir each other up to love and good works. Now, I love the language. I'm not like a big Greek nerd, but sometimes I do like to dig into the words and stuff. And this helps all of us just walk away feeling smarter. Amen. It's always good to know this stuff. And so I like this because, you know, if you really dig into the language behind stir up, you'll find that it's really provocative language. This word at its simplest form, it means to irritate, provoke, or annoy. Brothers and sisters, we have been given biblical license to annoy one another. And all of God's people said. So when you, when you hear this language of stir up, again, don't, don't think about stirring up ingredients to make a cake. Think about stirring up a hornet's nest by kicking it. Like, like that's the idea. Let us irritate one another to love and good works. Let us provoke one another to love and good works. Let us annoy one another to love and good works. Whenever, you know, we get up here, man, if somebody preaches every single week, I love this. I'm like, I have a license according to God's word to annoy everybody in the room. It's like when we're not loving each other well, when we're not serving each other well, and, and I go on a rant about it, you're like, that's annoying. I'm like, good. Hebrews 10, annoy each other. We're called to annoy each other to love and good works. And we see that we do this in two specific ways. We do this, verses 24 and 25 show us, by faithfully gathering together. Let us stir up love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of of some. You know, a sad reality that we, we've got to pay attention to is that there has been a major generational decline over the last two decades when it comes to faithful attendance and service within the body of Christ. Not even a full generation ago, less than 20 years ago, faithful church attendance, faithful involvement in the church was considered for most on average once or twice a week. Now by most measures, it's considered once or twice a month. So the generational fade right now is the opposite of Hebrews chapter 10. Like many of us have fallen into the very habits that Hebrews 10 calls us not to fall into, which is neglecting to meet together. 
It's coming together as a body of believers. And man, it is such a, it's such an easy habit to fall into. Um, Emily and I have been married for 13 years. We celebrated 13 years this past Monday. And for pretty much the entirety of our marriage, I've served in full-time ministry somewhere. So man, we, we never get to ride to church together. Sunday's always busy for us. It's a very, very full day. We're kind of, you know, ships passing in the day, ships passing in the night, depending on the, the day and time. And, and there was a 12-week period in 2020, though, where our church was, we weren't allowed to meet in the YMCA. The YMCA was closed. Um, some of you guys remember this. It was the worst, right? Like, we, uh, we would post sermons. We'd put them online. And uh, we didn't have live stream stuff at the time. So what we were actually doing, um, it just, I'm sorry if you're upset at this, that we were tricking you. Um, I was actually recording on Thursday night, and it would post on Sunday morning. And then we would just, just post it Sunday morning. And so Sunday mornings, man, our family was waking up and going to the beach. And, and I would see some of you there, no judgment, right? Because I'm there too. And it was like surreal out-of-body experience. I could be at the beach and see members of our church like watching the sermon for that weekend on their screen. So weird. And, and I remember after doing this for a few Sundays, two thoughts like simultaneously hit me at once that I communicated to Emily. Number one, I looked at her and said, this is pretty nice. We got nowhere to be. We had three little boys, like, man, we, we don't have to worry about getting them out of bed and getting them dressed and getting them fed, and getting them out the door and, and running through the gauntlet of, of Sunday. We had never experienced this freedom before. And if we were being honest, we're like, man, th- this is really kind of nice. We could get used to this, which was immediately followed by the second sentiment, which was we need to get back to worship and we need to do it quickly. Because, we, man, I was like, man, if we're feeling it, I know everybody else is, we're gonna fall into a really bad habit. We're gonna fall into the habit of neglecting to meet together. And listen, I know it's 2020, it's crazy. And it's not that there's not, you know, pretty obvious exceptions here. Like, man, you're sick, you're caring for an ill family member, you you have travel things for work that kind of take you out in ways that you have no control whatsoever. Church, on the authority of God's word, you and I need to recenter around the truth that gathering together for worship is not an optional suggestion, it's a biblical command then unless we've got some of those obvious exceptions, it should be the non-negotiable priority in our life that we do exactly what it is that we're doing together right now. You know, through, throughout 2020, over the last couple of decades, we've also seen the advent of things like live stream technology and, and, and being able to post sermons online. And we're glad to do this. You know, we've got a number of folks who are sick, who legitimately cannot be here, or who are physically shut in at home. And they rely on this every single week to be able to hear the word. But I hope you understand that this live stream stuff and, and these online sermons, that this should never be a replacement for this. It can be a supplement, but it should never be a replacement because you and I have a greater responsibility to the body of Christ beyond just showing up and listening to a sermon, beyond just tuning in for 30, 40 minutes, watching the sermon and then checking out. And we see that responsibility in the last part of verse 25. We stir up love and good works by faithfully gathering together and we stir up love and good works by frequently encouraging each other. Listen to how this text closes. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another encouraging one another and doing it all the more as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. You and I are called to a ministry of mutual encouragement. We have a responsibility to each other. 
Our responsibility is not just to show up and, and to listen and to sing. Our responsibility is to encourage each other. Listen, across three services this morning, I'd be willing to stake my life on the fact that there's probably more than one story like the one I told at the beginning of this sermon. Man, I, I know some of us every single week, like, like it was everything you could do to physically show up. And you're fighting through doubts and you've got brothers and sisters in this room and their faith is hanging by a string. They're struggling to even be here and they desperately need your encouragement. But some of us are waking up like, I'm just going to the beach today. And we're forsaking our responsibility to each other. Listen, sometimes we come confidently through those red doors. Sometimes we come boldly through those red doors like, I know that I am loved by God. I'm accepted by God through faith in Jesus Christ. But guys, sometimes we need others to carry us through those doors. And we have a calling and a responsibility to carry one another, to encourage one another, and to do it all the more as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. Guys, we weekly need that reminder. Jesus is coming again. It's as messy as this world is and as difficult as it is and as overwhelming as sin is, we need to hear it week in and week out and be reminded the day is coming that the, bride, the groom is coming for his bride. And when we gather together, what happens every week is the bride gets a little bit more ready for the groom. And we stand in great anticipation of the day of the Lord when Jesus is coming for his people. I've always loved these words from Ray Ortland about the church, about what the church is when we gather together. And he says, your church is ground zero for revival on the scale of Pentecost. And I would stand by this statement, our church notwithstanding. He said, if you can't believe that about your church, then find a church you do believe God can visit in power. And if you can believe about your church, then dig in, pray, serve, and cheerfully sacrifice for your belief. God has welcomed us into his presence. The veil of Christ's body was torn open. His blood was shed. The final sacrifice was made so that you and I can have unhindered access to God. And we reflect that every time we gather together. So my question for us is, why would we not be looking for every opportunity under the sun to do what we're doing right here? To come together to center on God's word, to be reminded of the gospel as we pass through those red doors, to hold fast to our confession through the preaching of the word and our listening to the word. How could we not do these things all the more as we set our eyes on the day that Jesus is coming for us again? So as we close up this morning, I wanna ask us just three quick questions for reflection in light of everything that we've just heard. Three questions for reflection as we close today. First question is, are you faithfully committed to a local church? Listen, I, I promise you, I, I know sometimes we talk about church like they're rival gangs or something. It's really messed up. I promise you we're not so naive as to believe that we are the only faithful church in this community. There's plenty of faithful churches in this community. And, and if you're here, man, we hope that you'll be committed here. We hope that you will labor together with us in ministry and the advance of the gospel. But listen, if it's not here, our desire is just that you be connected somewhere. Be connected somewhere and fully invest yourself there for the building up of the kingdom and the advance of the gospel with brothers and sisters in Christ. So maybe that's something as simple as taking a step of membership here, or if you're visiting other churches, taking a step of membership there. Be fully committed, be fully connected. Don't neglect to meet together. Do it all the more as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. Second question, are you firmly clinging to the truth of God's word? Are you firmly clinging to the truth of God's word? Are you holding fast to your confession? 
Are you holding fast to the truth that Jesus is Lord? Have you submitted your life to the authority of his word? Or are you looking for every single opportunity to open up your hand and give up ground in the pressures of this world? Hold fast to your confession. Are you holding fast to your confession, firmly clinging to God's word? And finally, this morning, I just wanna ask, are you fully confident in the atoning work of Christ? Where's your confidence today? Where is your confidence today? If your confidence is just in the fact that you're here, your confidence is in the wrong thing. If it's in all of your religious work, all of your religious performance, your spiritual resume that you're super impressed with and maybe others are impressed with as well, your confidence is in the wrong thing. Have you hung the hopes of your soul on the finished work of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary on your behalf so that you can be saved from your sins, so that you can be sanctified, so you can be purified, so that you can boldly and confidently come into the presence of a holy God? Listen, I know some of us, we do walk in here, maybe today we walk in here almost every single week and we look at the duffel bag of our life's mess that we're carrying in here. We're weighed down by our past, weighed down our history. We, we, we lapse, we fall, we're inconsistent. And we're just struggling as followers of Jesus. And we, we start to listen to the lies of the enemy that we're not worthy. And so I just wanna extend to you once again this morning the invitation that you see on those walls outside those red doors. The invitation that Jesus extends to you this morning is to all who are weary and need rest and to all who are empty and long for hope and to all of us who fail and desire strength, to all who sin. That's all of us, by the way, and need a savior. Let's continue to open wide those red doors and let's continue to frequently come through those red doors confidently to worship together, confidently to worship a holy God with the assurance of knowing Jesus has done everything for us that we could never do for ourselves. So you bow your heads with me as we close together this morning. What a fitting text of scripture leading into our time of communion where we come to remember that it was the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that it was through that gate, through that curtain, we can be ushered into the presence of a holy God. So let's just come before the Lord honestly and in confession of our sin. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the table. What is in you that is not of Christ? What words, what actions, what motives, what desires, what thoughts? Where are you trying to shut Jesus out? That's the door he's knocking on most loudly today. Will you open that to him? Confession is difficult. It's uncomfortable. It's hard. It's hard to look into the mirror of God's word and honestly acknowledge our sin, but the assurance of pardon given to us in 1 John 1, 9 is that if we confess our sins, we will find that the Lord is faithful. He is just. He will forgive us of our sins. He will cleanse us of unrighteousness. 
Jesus will present you holy and blameless before the Father today. So Father, help us to be honest before you today, to honestly confess our sins. Grant us a heart of true and genuine repentance that we would go beyond feelings of conviction and feelings of sorrow, feelings of remorse, and that by the power of your Holy Spirit within us, you would enable us to turn away from our sin and to rest in the satisfaction you offer us in Jesus Christ. As we come to this table this morning, will you be glorified as we partake of the cup and of the bread? as we pray and we sing and we confess and we repent and we respond as you lead us this morning, be glorified in the response of your people. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.